All right. Hey, we are uh, in what we're calling this Made for This Journey. All year long, our theme has been on uh, discovering the mission that God has for us, what this life uh, is all about, what God has put us here for. And so we've been devoting uh, these six weeks here in the fall um, to really dig into that. And um, I hope you've been enjoying that. Hey, I hope you're keeping up with your reading. If you're not, don't worry about it. Jump back in. Um, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people that said, ah, I wasn't sure I wanted to read the book or I didn't have the time, or I didn't want to do it, and then I did it anyways, and my goodness, have I been blessed by that. Um, And so I hope that you are taking time to read those daily chapters. Um, They are awesome. Hey, before we jump into today's uh, um, theme, though, I want to tell you a little bit about something that is going to happen next week. So I want to invite Mike and Karen Guthmiller to come up. Uh, Next week, we are going to wrap things up by looking at our fifth biblical purpose, which is life on mission. And one of the ways that we live life on mission um, is not only in the things that we do and, and the way that we, uh, we are on mission, but uh, how can we partner with what God is doing, especially globally around the world? And one ministry um, that our church has just got a long and wonderful history with is the Grace English School in India, and they have a, a need. And next week, we are going to take a special offering specifically to help meet that need. And so, Karen, why don't you just tell us a little bit um, about that? And I think we've got a this slide with some pictures of it. very dangerous. You gave me a mic. I know. And it's India, so I'll go quick. I'll go quick. Okay. So um, God is doing great things in India. Um, We are so excited. About 12 years ago, we had one student (laughs) at our school, and uh, today we have 172. So we are busting at the seams, as you might imagine. Um, We have pre-K all the way to fifth grade. And uh, there has been a need for a while to extend our grades to six, seven, and eight. And so we've been in touch with the Department of Education in India. We are all approved through that department, but you have to ask permission to add grades. And so they came back and said to us, sure, you can add grades, but first you have to have facilities and buildings. We said, okay, we'll work on that. So that's why we're here today. Um, We're starting a building project, uh, Lord willing, uh, that will add four classrooms on top of the building that we built a couple years ago, which is our new chapel. And so um, we're going to have four new classrooms so that we can extend into grades six, seven, and eight. And that way our students will stay with us longer and they will get more education and most importantly, hear more about Jesus. Yeah. And one of the amazing things, as you can imagine, with a school like this is not only does it minister to those kids, but the, you know, that spills out into all of those families and it spills out into all of the community. Um, and so, do you know about what the price is on that? I've heard something, but tell us what. Price. Uh, the estimate from our uh, administrators, probably around 40, three, forty, four thousand. Okay. But history tells us he misses that number by about 50%. So, <laughs> Which uh, direction? <laughs> so we're, we're guessing we probably need around $60,000 okay. Okay. Uh, to do the project. Uh, and, you know, price of materials and labor, just like uh, in the Amer- in United States, continues to go up. Inflation is catching up with India, just like here. So uh, that gives us some contingency funds if we don't spend it. Obviously, uh, that would be something that would just go back into the coffers and we'd spend the money on our operations. So 
anyway, yeah. that's our guesstimate. So the board of that school comes really primarily out of this church. Mike and Karen have been members of that. Um, all of the, the funds from the coffee bar go to support that school. But occasionally as these needs come up, we want to be available for that. And so um, I would love to see our church. And this is always a stretch to do above and a beyond offering. This is above kind of what we, we normally give. But we would love to um, partner with what God is doing in India. Um, great news. We do have the first $15,000 has come in as kind of a matching gift. Um, I would love to see um, us uh, at least match that next week as we look towards that 40 plus whatever uh, goal uh, for that. So um, anything else? Well, I was just going to say, well, you gave it back to me. So um, I was just going to say, we also are finding um, that God is um, extending our favor in the um, small village. And uh, people are coming. Uh, they're actually uh, holding a church service in the building during on Sundays as well. So that's pretty exciting too. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, before we jump into our message, would you just join me in a word of prayer and let's ask uh, God's hand on this ministry. God, I thank you so much for the miraculous work that you have done in that part of India. And I thank you for not only those 170 plus kids right now, but I think of all of the kids in that region, Lord, and all of the families that you love so dearly. And so we thank you that Grace English School is already a light in that place, and we ask that it would shine even brighter by adding these classrooms. And so, Father, I pray for us as a church. Um, give us, Lord, uh, uh, a sensitivity to hear your voice and to step out in faith and say, Lord, where there's a need, we want to be a part of it. And so, uh, bless this as we are a part of it, and we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Hey, let's appreciate Mike and Karen for their work. Thank you. All right, and we are going to jump into week five of the Made for This Journey. So we are in the home stretch at this point. Um, Today we are going to look at the fourth of the five biblical purposes. Um, Our title is Serve Like Jesus, and the, the purpose that we talk about is that we are shaped to serve. We are shaped to serve. And so we believe here at First Baptist Church that none of us are called to sit on the sidelines when it comes to a life of ministry and a life of service to others. All of us are called to get in the game, to find that place as a member of the body of Christ, um, to serve and to uh, give our lives away in service. So when we talked about being shaped to serve, that's actually an acronym uh, for uh, something that can help us to discover that place for us to serve. You're going to read about it this week in your readings from the uh, the book. They're, they're really great. Um, Shaped for service, S stands for uh, our spiritual gifts. And the spiritual gifts, when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we are filled with his Holy Spirit. One of the things that God's Spirit does for each person is he gives us gifts, not to be used for our glory, but for God's glory and for serving others. So S is for spiritual gifts. H, however, stands also for our hearts. It's not just to our gifts that, that lead us to our ministry, but what are the things that you love? What is your heart? A stands for your abilities. What skills? do you have that could be used um, for the kingdom of God? Uh, P stands for our personality, um, because we all have different personalities and uh, that are suited to different kinds of ministries. And then E stands for our experiences. So both the good and the difficult things that we have faced in life can all be used for God's glory to serve other people. We say in our step three class that God never wastes a hurt. And so some of those difficult things that you've been through One of the reasons why is so that you can help other people go through, if not those same circumstances, uh, things like that. And so you are shaped to serve. But today's message is actually going to be a little bit different than that because my goal this morning is not to convince you of the benefits of serving. 
They are many, right? Including longer, healthier, uh, more satisfied life uh, we see for people that serve. My goal definitely is not necessarily to get you to sign up to volunteer for a specific ministry in the church uh, to fill some need, though we certainly have those needs, uh, middle school especially, uh, but uh, that's not my goal necessarily. My goal is not even to convince you to serve in our community, even though volunteerism is way down nationwide um, since COVID. But my goal goal and what I want to do this morning is I want us to have a biblical and a theological foundation for a lifestyle of service and ministry. And I want us to build that foundation this morning. And here's the deal. If you get this, it will transform your life. If you get it, not only will it change your life, but you will become a blessing to everyone around you. All of those people in your life, you suddenly become a blessing to them. And it is a huge step to living out what we are made for. And so get ready because today we are actually going to do some kind of in-depth Bible study, um, primarily around the name that Jesus uses for himself. So what do I mean by that? Now, when people talk about Jesus in the Gospels and in the New Testament, um, they often refer to Jesus as rabbi or teacher. People often call him the Christ, and Christ is not his last name, right? You know that. He wasn't born to Mary and Joseph Christ. Christ is a, a title. It means anointed. It means uh, Messiah. It means the king. And so people refer to Jesus with those titles, but there's one kind of special title that Jesus often uses for himself. Does anybody know what that is? Son of man. Jesus calls himself more often than anything the son of man. And Son of Man is this fascinating title because it refers to, it can just refer to the fact that uh, it refers to humanity. And so we know that Jesus is Son of God and Son of Man, all, all God, but all man. But there is also a technical definition for Son of Man that comes from the Old Testament, and specifically in Daniel chapter 7. And especially the Jewish people in Jesus's day that he came to would have been very familiar with this definition definition in Daniel chapter 7 and would have been keenly aware of all the things that were promised in this Old Testament uh, passage. So Daniel chapter 7 is not only fascinating, but it's actually an important uh, kind of chapter for understanding the the Bible and really a lot of of human history. And so if you want to, you can turn there, but I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface of Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is an exile in Babylon. And so he's living as a captive in Babylon, and he has this crazy dream. And in this dream, Daniel sees four different beasts. And each of these beasts seems scarier and more powerful than the one before it. Now, we know that each one of these beasts in Daniel's dream represents a different kind of nation or world power in world history. So the first beast that he dreams about represents Babylon. We already said he was a captive in Babylon. Babylon was the world's kind of superpower of that time. And so the first beast is is Babylon. But then with this kind of incredible prophetic accuracy, Daniel's dream goes into the future. And the next dream or the next beast is about the person. Persian Empire that would come next. And then the next beast after that is the Greek Empire that would come next. And then the worst, the most heinous of them all, the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. And in Daniel's dream, as scary and as powerful as each one of these beasts is, eventually they all have to come before the throne of the ancient 
of days, and that's in Daniel's dream. The Ancient of Days, I think, is just this beautiful description of, of God's, you know, power and his eternal nature. And so God is on the throne. The Ancient of Days is on the throne, and the beasts have to come before them. And in Daniel 7, there's a lot of apocalyptic language, and so there's fire, and there's a river coming from the throne, and, and there's angels all around giving glory uh, to, the, to, the, um, to the Ancient of Days, who is the one that can judge and destroy the beast. He's the one that can defeat the beast. And yet as wild as all that seems, the dream uh, continues on by introducing us to this one that we call the Son of Man. I'm going to read to you Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, that says this. Daniel describes it, and he says, in this vision that I just talked about, in my vision at night, I looked, and there was one who was, uh, there was one before me that was like a Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and he was led into his presence. And this Son of Man was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all the nations and all the people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so did you catch all that? Because that describes the Son of Man that the Jews of Jesus' days were longing for. For 500 plus years, they had had their eyes on the sky waiting for the Son of Man to come. And, and so just, just to review, what are some of the characteristics of the Son of Man in Daniel 7? First of all, he comes in the clouds. Um, that is a, a symbol of a person's divinity. Nobody rides on the clouds except the maker of the clouds. And so he, he rides on the cloud. That speaks that, that of his divine nature. The Son of Man also will help judge and defeat these powerful beasts, including... Rome, which is the world superpower and the oppressors in the time that Jesus comes, right? And then he says that the Son of Man is going to be given power and authority and glory and dominion. And I want you to write those words down because that is so important. The Son of Man is going to be given power, authority, glory, and dominion, specifically over all nations and all people. And the fourth is his kingdom would never end. Unlike the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, all that would eventually fade away, the kingdom of the Son of Man would have no end. So you could see why people are pretty excited about the coming of the Son of Man and they're longing for him to come. And then arrives Jesus on the scene. And he begins to do all of these miracles and he begins to teach with this authority that nobody had ever seen before. And he begins to refer to himself as the son of man. And people are starting to think, all right, all right, here we go. Power, authority, glory, and dominion. And not just for Jesus, but for Jesus' followers and Jesus' people as well. But here's what's weird about the whole thing, and here's where the turn is. Every time people wait for Jesus to throw down his power, authority, glory, and dominion, he would surprise them by saying things like this. He would say, sure, the Son of Man is going to come again in the clouds and help defeat evil. Yes, that's going to happen. But then he would say something like this. Oh yeah, but by the way, the Son of Man came to eat and drink with sinners. And oh yeah, this, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the Son of Man came to lay down his life for others, right? And so this theme of Jesus as servant and Son of Man 
is just huge for us to understand who Jesus is and for us to lay this foundation that we're talking about for service. So Jesus as servant and son of man is a big theme in all of the gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it comes to almost kind of a comical climax in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Mark 8, 9, and 10, because as I said, we're going to kind of do some Bible study here, and we're going to see these three consecutive chapters have three accounts, one right after the other, of Jesus explaining to his disciples uh, what the Son of Man truly came to do. And each time Jesus tells his disciples what the Son of Man truly came to do, the disciples hugely miss the point. They just miss the point all three times, and Jesus has to set them straight with this teaching about serving and sacrifice. And that teaching is the foundation of this biblical and theological foundation that I want us to to walk away with this morning. Um, So just a reminder, Mark is obviously inspired um, by God, but uh, we're going to see some things that if you're just kind of reading a verse here and a verse there, you don't pick these things up. And Mark not only is inspired, but he's also a brilliant author, and he uses this repetition that we're going to see as kind of a literary device to prove his point. And so let's look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 begins with Jesus, at his ministry is kind of at a high point. So the first thing we see in Mark 8 is Jesus feeds 4,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves. By the way, if you want to be popular, you want to build a following, you want to get a crowd to follow you, great tip, free food. People love free food. It works for Jesus. The people love it. But he finishes the the feeding the 4,000. And the next thing he does is he heals a blind man. He actually takes the man out of town so that nobody would see it. And after he heals him, he says, hey, don't even go back to town and tell people. Because Jesus knows that the word was spreading so much that that they would they would even come to get him before it was his time. In fact, how big, great are things going in Mark chapter 8? It's kind of a high point in the gospel of Mark in 829 when Peter is the first person to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. Super significant. So remember, Jesus asked him, hey, Peter, who do people say that I am? And he answers, and he says, Peter, how about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. Peter says, you are the Messiah. In the other Gospels, it says that you are the the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so things are going great in Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 8. Everything is up up and to the right. Uh, Attendance is up. The giving is great. Uh, People are getting the vision. And especially the disciples are thinking, all right, here we go. Let's get on to the power, authority, glory, and dominion that we have all been waiting for. And then you come to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, when Jesus says this. Mark 8, 31. It says, Jesus began to teach them, talking about the disciples, that the Son of Man, yes, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And I'm sure the disciples went, huh? Uh, Come again, Jesus? Have you not read Daniel chapter 7? Right? Because we were all about the power, authority, glory, and dominion. But here's what we do in kind of the spirit of good Bible study in your notes. I want to start making a list of some of the things that Jesus says about the Son of Man. And so uh, the first things we see in, in these verses, he says that the Son of Man would suffer. The Son of Man would suffer. He would be rejected. Um, Specifically, he would be rejected by the religious powers and the Jewish people of the day. He will be killed and that he will rise again. 
So that's a pretty big news flash to the disciples. How do they handle it? Well, Peter, who just realized that, that Jesus was the Messiah, just to announce that Jesus was the Messiah, is the first one who takes offense to it. And it says in, in Mark eight thirty three that Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him, right? So, so you're the Messiah, you're the king, but oh yeah, now I'm going to rebuke you. And so Peter starts to rebuke Jesus, and so Jesus has to set things straight. And in Mark eight thirty three, Jesus says this. It says, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said this, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so this is so fascinating because Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for all the talk about service and suffering. But Jesus says, hey, Peter, to try and resist my role, if you're trying to resist my role as a servant and as a suffering servant specifically, that is demonic. That is, in fact, satanic. Get behind me, Satan, with that temptation that says that I should pursue a life of ease and comfort before I pursue a life of service and sacrifice. And the reality is, Jesus had been facing this temptation time and time again. When he goes out into the wilderness at the very beginning of the Gospels, what does the the devil tempt him with? Among other things, to take the easy route. You don't have to lay down your life. You don't have to go through all this. And so Jesus has faced this one before. When we come to the very end of his life and Jesus is in the garden and he's praying, Lord, take this cup of suffering away from me. But nevertheless, your will be done, not my will. So Jesus was familiar with this temptation, but now it's coming from one of his own disciples. And he says that is a satanic line of thinking to think that, that, that I'm somehow don't need to serve and to sacrifice. In fact, to make his point even stronger, uh, Jesus continues in Mark 8, 34, and he says this, he said, uh, or Mark uh, 8, 35, it says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12, so this is all still in Mark 8, sitting down, he calls the 12, and he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. I'm, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm mixing up Mark 8 and Mark 9. Mark, uh, I hope we have the right thing on the screen. Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet to forfeit their soul? And so Jesus says, if you, um, uh, if you want to serve like me, you have to embrace what is sometimes called the upside-down kingdom, an upside-down way of life where you actually find your life and you find fullness and abundance in life by giving your life away. You know, it's been so fascinating watching all of the um, coverage of the, the Queen's death. Have you guys been watching that? You can't help it. It's everywhere. Um, and I'm not criticizing that by all accounts. She was a, a, a faithful and a, a good queen over the people of her kingdom. And, you know, so it's interesting to watch all this stuff. But you think about all of the parades and all of the pageantry and all the fancy clothes and all the expensive cars um, that were, you know, to honor this queen. And then think a little bit about the parade that Jesus describes for his followers. He says, come and follow me, and you take up your cross, and you follow me, and that's our parade, because the Son of Man came to lay down his life. And then you come to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. 
Uh, Mark chapter 9 begins kind of like Mark chapter 8. Um, almost al- immediately, Jesus is added again. Uh, the, the, the chapter begins with Jesus being transfigured up on the mountain. That means he t- invites uh, some of his disciples, three of his disciples. They go up on the mountain. The veil is kind of pulled back, and they're allowed to see Jesus in some of the fullness of his glory. He's there with Elijah and, and Moses there on the mountain. And so it's kind of a, a high point for them to see who Jesus really is. Um, he comes down from the mountain, and the first thing he does is he heals a, a boy possessed with a, a demon. Jesus is consistently showing that he's the Lord over the, the spiritual realms. This demon was so bad for this little boy that he would froth at the mouth and, and the, the, the demon would try to harm him by throwing him in the fire. And Jesus casts this demon out and this little boy, all of his torment is gone. And all of the people that are watching this happen do what people do when they see something like that. They think, wow, that's amazing. Bring on the honor, the power, the glory, and the authority, and the dominion, right? Because look what he just did. Is this the one we've been waiting for? And then you get to Mark 9, 31 and 32. It says again, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man, there it is, the Son of Man is what? Going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what it meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So what does it say there that, that would happen to the Son of Man? Let's keep making this list. We started already with he would be suffer, he would kill, be killed. Now you could add to the list that he would be delivered to his killers, which speaks of a betrayal, right? And not just betrayed by anyone. Specifically, he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest followers. One of his 12 is going to, to sell his soul for, for 30 pieces of silver, And so for the second time in two chapters now, we see a pattern begin to appear that Jesus is very clear that yes, he is the son of man. He is the son of man, but that the son of man came to suffer and die. And what did the disciples do with this life-changing information? They get in an argument. And what do they argue about? You know, they argue about who's the greatest, right? How classic is that? Jesus had just told them all this stuff about what was going to happen to him in the very near future, and these guys decide to get into an argument about who is the greatest. I mean, who even has an argument like that, right? Well, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Back and forth, they go. And like I said, it's almost kind of this comical thing that Mark reveals to us. But Jesus is going to set them straight. And here's the passage that I started reading a, a minute ago. Mark nine thirty-five through 37. So Jesus sits them down. There's quite a few times Jesus has to sit his disciples down in this whole little three-chapter uh, scenario. So he sits them down, and Jesus calls the 12, and he said, anyone who wants to be first, because that's what they were arguing about. I want to be first. I want to be the greatest. He says, if, well, if you want to be first, you must be the very last and the servant of all. And then as if Jesus is Steve Steele looking for a prop in a sermon, um, he grabs a little child and he places him, the child among them. And then taking the child in his arms, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome just me, but the one who sent me. You want to be great? Humble yourself. Specifically, he says, serve in a way and humble yourself in a way that serves the least of these, and his example is a child. In fact, if you want to serve like Jesus, it means that you are available specifically to the needs of the least of these, to the most needy. 
In, in fact, have you noticed how much of Jesus' ministry, when you read through it, just happens kind of in an unplanned way? He's on his way somewhere, and someone interrupts him, and Jesus stops and ministers to that person. He's just available time and time again. I, I think, how did he have you know, the margin in his day for those kind of things? But if we're going to serve like Jesus, one of the things that it means for us is we become available to not only serve people, but specifically the needy among us. And Jesus illustrates that with a child who kind of had the least rights of of almost anybody um, in that time. Well, God, like he often does, uh, taught me this point in kind of a a profound and embarrassing sort of way for me. Um, This week, I was working on this sermon, and I was thinking specifically about this part, about, you know, how Jesus was available to people and available to the needy. And, and so I got up early one morning, and, and I was on my way. I, I, I live not too far from here, so I walked to church almost always. And I was walking to church, and I was going to get here um, like an hour before everybody else. And I was so excited. I was going to make myself a nice cup of coffee. I was going to sit in my cozy office, and I was going to write this awesome sermon on being available and serving um, the needy. And so I'm thinking about these things and I'm walking here and I get uh, kind of turn into the parking lot and I can see far enough that sitting by the front door, there's a man who's got a pile of stuff sitting next to him. And so I walk a little closer and I realize that it's someone that I know. Um, it's a, a guy, he's, he's homeless that um, we've known and kind of, I've known him for years and, and the church has helped him off and on through the years. He's, um, he's harmless and a really a very nice guy, but I, I struggle, just to be honest, he's, he's difficult. He knows everything, wants to argue about everything, wants to talk and talk and talk. And so um, I saw that and I thought, but I'm going to write a sermon on being available <laughs> to the needy. Yeah, I get the irony now. One of the thoughts that floated through your pastor's brain that day was... <laughs> I wonder if I could sneak around the back and maybe he wouldn't (laughs) see me. And I knew that that wasn't right. And so I went and I talked to him and we talked almost the whole hour, um, almost that whole hour. And he's someone who more than anything, he needs someone to sit and talk to. And here's the deal. Um, I was behind the whole rest of the day. I feel like I never quite got that hour back. And I felt like I was just kind of chasing after things all the rest of the day. And it bummed me out until I realized, here's the thing. I am not made for getting all the tasks on my to-do list done. I am made for becoming like Jesus Christ, right? That's my biggest priority. More than my to-do list, I am made to be like Jesus, which means I am made to serve right? And so the, the biggest priorities are to do these things that Jesus says to do. And then you turn to Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is at it again. Uh, this time it's not healing, but some of his most profound teaching on the kingdom of God comes at the beginning of Mark chapter 10. And I imagine that the disciples are starting to think, now we're, now we're getting there. We're almost there. We're just right around the corner is the power and the glory and the authority and the dominion that we are all looking for. And then you come to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on their way up to Jerusalem. Why were they on their way up to Jerusalem? It was where Jesus was going to lay down his life. And they they knew that, right? Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He was very intentional about it. And they were on their way up to Jerusalem. And what? Jesus was leading the way. Jesus was leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed after him were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside. And he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Hey, let's go back to our list just one more time. We've already done suffer, die, delivered over. Um, Notice here he's delivered over both to the Jewish leaders and to the Gentiles. That's symbolic of everybody turning their back on Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. And what are they going to do? You can add this to your list. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him. They're going to kill him. And on the third day, he is going to rise again. And do you think the disciples understood? No. Because somewhere in the sinful human nature that all of us carry since the fall is not only a desire to resist, or not only a desire to resist suffering over comfort and ease, we have that that longing for comfort and ease, but inside every one of us, if you are honest, is a desire for honor and glory and power and dominion. And so Jesus, for the third time in three chapters, tells them exactly what is going to happen. And what did James and John do? They get into another little argument, and they come to Jesus kind of on the side. And they say, hey, Jesus... um, you know, we've been watching you, We're big fans, we love what you're doing. Um, uh, so, by the way, when you come into your glory, I was thinking I could sit on your left and, and my brother could sit on the right, or I could sit on the right, he could sit on the left, you know, whatever. Um, but when you come into your glory, Jesus, we want to sit on your side. Um, Jesus has to answer me. He says, you don't, you don't, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. He says, can you even drink the, uh, the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized in the baptism that I'm going to be baptized in? Um, and then in Mark chapter 10, verse 41, he says this. Uh, 10.41 says, And then the ten, when the ten, the other ten, heard about this fight between James and John, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together. Team meeting, one more time. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you catch that? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. Which brings us to kind of the the so what of this biblical foundation, this theological foundation of service. And let me just suggest a couple of them. And the first one is this. You are not going to find kingdom greatness by pursuing power and honor. You're going to find kingdom greatness through sacrifice and service. In fact, I would go so far as to say one of the reasons that Jesus is so worthy of our praise and our honor and our worship is because of, because of his humility and his sacrifice. Because here's one thing that I want to be clear about. All of that stuff in Daniel chapter 7 is 100% true. He's coming in the clouds. He is going to have a kingdom that is going to outlast any earthly kingdom. He is worthy of glory and honor and dominion and power. But we see that almost you could say that he earned that power and authority and glory when he did what? When he spread out his arms and he took the nails for me. In fact, did you notice in each time that Jesus says what the Son of Man is going to go through, he says he's going to suffer, he's going to be killed, he's going to be betrayed, all these things. And then what? What's in every single one of them? On the third day, he's going to rise again. 
right? On the third day, he's going to rise again. That's not going to be the end of it. But here's the deal, and this is true in Jesus' example, and it's true in our life as well. There is no glory and there is no resurrection without sacrifice and death. And the same is true for, for me and you. The pathway to greatness is not pursuing greatness. The pathway to, to, to greatness is pursuing Jesus Christ, which causes us to lay down our lives in service. We are made for this stuff, you guys. We are made by God to give our lives away in service to God and in service to other people. A second thing along those lines, and I just think this has been really helpful for me in my life, and so hopefully it's helpful to you. It goes back again to Daniel's original vision where he sees those, those four beasts. And the Son of Man plays this big role in defeating the beasts. And in Daniel, the beasts are these, these kingdoms um, that had stood in opposition to God. But as you and I think about the things that stand in opposition to God in our life, what are the things that, that are, are, are holding you back from fully experiencing all that God has for you? The pathway to defeating those beasts, those sins, those broken relationships, is not a life of pride, but a life of humility. Especially as you think about relationships in your life. If some of the, the, the difficult areas in your life is a, a broken relationship somewhere, Maybe with a spouse, maybe with an ex, maybe with your kids, maybe with a friend, maybe with another person at church, whatever it is, and, and, and you've got those broken relationships. They, they feel like a beast, if you could. The pathway to defeating those things is not standing up and demanding pride, power and pride. The pathway to defeating those is to go in humility and service. You see, the greatest among you is going to be the servant of all. God, let's, uh, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the truth of your word, and I thank you for this season in Jesus' life that reveals to us so clearly that even the Son of Man came to lay down his life. And Father, even though he was worthy of all the, the glory and authority and honor, Father, he still taught us to serve. And I pray that that would be our heart as well. I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters here, for this church, Lord, that we would be known as a serving people, following the example of our Savior. We believe we were made for this. And so help us, Lord, to live this out. I pray that even in the quiet of this moment, that you would bring to our minds someone that this week we can serve, someone that we can go to, someone that we can minister to, someone that we can be available to, because we want to be like your son, Jesus Christ. It's what we're made for. And we thank you for that, Jesus. Amen.